On November 15th, the world watched as a highly anticipated meeting between Chinese leader Xi Jinping and US President Joe Biden took place amid the scenic backdrop of Woodside, California. From a controversial visit by a US House Speaker to Taiwan to a Chinese spy balloon crossing the United States, the two countries' relations have sunk to their lowest point in decades. And from the war in Ukraine to the conflict opposing Israel and the Palestinians, and a general election in Taiwan that could decide the fate not just of the island, but the entire region. A more assertive Beijing is attempting to redefine the rules of the game. As the country marks the end of its presidency of the UN Security Council this November, we ask a simple question. What does China want? What drives its foreign policy? And what would a world order led by China look like? Today, I am joined in Oslo by Ilaria Carosa, a senior researcher at Prio and an expert on Chinese foreign policy. And from Beijing, Jinchen Wang, a Chinese public intellectual with the Center for China and Globalization and the founder and editor of newsletter Pekinology. I am Arno Siad and you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. Ilaria, Zichen, welcome both. Let me start with you, Zinchen. And that meeting between Xi Jinping and President Biden, this took place during one of the frostier periods in the relationship between China and the United States and under the guise of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, APEC. So not quite the state visit by a world leader to the White House, but a meeting nonetheless. Zichen, can you help us understand what was at stake here from the Chinese perspective? Oh, thank you. Uh, let me begin by saying it's a great privilege to appear on this podcast, and uh, I'm very, very much privileged to share my personal insights with you. So, on this latest meeting, I think the first thing actually, you know, Beijing has emphasized is that the invitation for the bilateral summit between President Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping was a special invitation that's not just on the sidelines of APAC. It's kind of, you know, a special one because if you also uh, look at the President Biden's uh, calendar, it was his only bilateral meeting when he was in San Francisco. And yes, it was not a state visit to the White House, but it was uh, the culmination of, you know, many diplomatic activities. I think both sides worked very hard and uh, demonstrated the sincerity for re-establishing channels of communications and and, uh, you know, which ultimately led up to the two top leaders summit. I think on the Chinese side, Beijing thinks the summit is positive and uh, successful. The Chinese readout says the summit uh, reached, you know, 20 significant outcomes, including many things. For example, the China-US anti-fentanyl uh, cooperation working group. And uh, President Xi also said China is willing to send more pandas, which is a favorite uh, among the American citizens, especially the young people. And also, I think uh, worth mentioning is that the personal exchanges between the two presidents were very visible and helpful. For example, when President Biden walked uh, President Xi out of their summit, he asked about Xi's vehicle, the Hongqi, the red uh, uh, flag car. And later at a multilateral APEC meeting, Biden also stood up and walked to presidency to engage personally. So I think the general take here, it was a successful and a very positive meeting. 
Right. But I want to draw attention to two moments of that meeting. The first is President Biden's hawkish speech, right? I mean, he emphasized that the United States and China are in a competition. But a second moment came at a news conference following his meeting with Xi Jinping, where he was asked by a journalist if he thought the Chinese leader was a dictator. Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that we used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country based on with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken squirming in the audience as he heard his boss. <laughs> and these are the types of things journalists live for. And China called Biden's statement, quote, extremely incorrect and seemed to move on pretty quickly. And indeed, as you said, Zichen, uh, besides the statements, the meeting concluded with the resuming of military talks, which had ceased after China severed military-to-military communications last year after then-U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. So, Ilaria, Xi Jinping has described the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China as the most important in the world. So what does China expect from that relationship? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that we have to you know, talk about what is realistic here, right, between the two states. So what China wants from the US is probably to be left alone, to, you know, extend its influence, particularly in the in the Pacific region and also globally. Uh, but I think the chances of that happening are below zero. So then realistically, what China can expect is at a minimum to, to keep working towards making this relationship better, um, uh, more cooperation perhaps on global goods such as climate change or, or, or um, pandemic prevention, for example. Uh, I think also um, a crucial element is that it um, it probably hopes that the US would not enforce uh, further expert control and restrictions on critical technologies because these restrictions do have the potential to like seriously harm uh, the development of Chinese technology, both civilian and military. And also something I wanted to highlight, going back to what Zichen said about the readout after the, the meeting, um, where I think it was interesting because whereas the United States has always been open about saying there is competition between us two, uh, China has not really ever acknowledged uh, this competition. But the readout says that uh, there is a recognition that there are competitive aspects to this relationship that needs to be managed. And I think this was an interesting signal, right, to send. And so I think that while it was obviously good that the two leaders met, it was long overdue, in fact, I don't think I would caution, I guess, against interpreting this meeting as, as bringing any substantial change to what I think remains a difficult relationship. And in this difficult relationship, as you say, few topics divide the two countries more than the status of Taiwan. Taiwan is in fact heading for elections in January 2024, and the outcome of that will be very consequential and influence the country's foreign policy in the years to come. So on the one hand, if the more China-friendly Kuomintang or KMT party wins, then there is a chance that cross-trade relations will improve. But if the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, the party currently ruling Taiwan, wins again, then continued tensions are more likely. So, Dinchen, do you think a DPP victory would contribute to deepening Taiwan's ties with the United States and other democracies? And how is Beijing going to react to that? Okay, on this question, as you probably know, and China has repeatedly said, like, you know, Taiwan is the core of the 
core interests of the People's Republic of China and uh, at the center of China-U.S. relations. Uh, I'd like to add one sentence about the summit, uh, which was just mentioned, is that, of course, I think material uh, observers know is uh, China-U.S. ties are stabilizing on a relatively low level. I mean, nobody has any hopes of going back to the so-called good old days. And on the election of uh, in Taiwan, scheduled to be on January, I think, 13th, uh, currently, as you said, we have you know multiple candidates. And in addition to the candidates from the uh, ruling party, the DPP, there are also the Kuomintang, the Taiwan People's Party, headed by a former mayor of Taipei, and an independent candidate who is the founder of Foxconn, or Hong High Precision, Apple's largest uh, manufacturer. So the two opposition parties were talking about joining forces, uh, I mean, a few days ago, but they hit a roadblock. And uh, now the situation is very fluid as we speak. Uh, the moment we are speaking, there are interactions between, you know, the three uh, campaigns. I think uh, the Chinese mainland's official stance uh, stand has always been it's watching closely, but it doesn't interfere with the process. The ruling DPP, as, uh, as you just said, is indeed viewed unfavorably in the Chinese mainland because it's seen as pro-independence. You know, the Chinese mainland's uh, attitude is basically uh, the, whoever in power in Taiwan should uh, recognize the so-called 1992 consensus. Um, for listeners, that's the agreement between the KMT, the Taiwanese authorities at the time, and the Chinese Communist Party that re-established talks between Beijing and Taipei. Last time, there was a KMT, uh, which is Kuomintang administration on the island, which was led by then-President Ma Ying-jeou. Uh, Cross-strait relations were much more stable, and people-to-people exchanges, in, including you know, two-way tourism, were very robust. Taiwan was able to participate in the World Health Assembly as an observer under the name Chinese Taipei. And, and by the way, Taiwan's formal name is Republic of China. Uh, I mean, at the time, I don't remember many complaints from the U.S. government or other, for example, Japan. And perhaps a more immediate threat to a regional conflict may not be found in Taiwan, but in Gaza and Israel. I looked at China's voting record at the UN on the attacks in Israel on October 7th and the war in Gaza. So October 16th and October 18th, China supports a Russian-led and a Brazilian-led Security Council resolutions, both calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, both defeated by a U.S. veto. But on October 25th, it is China that vetoes a U.S.-led resolution calling for humanitarian pauses, not a ceasefire. That same day, China supports a Russian-led resolution calling, this time, for a ceasefire, which the U.S. vetoes in return. The deadlock comes to an end on November 15th when China votes in favor of a Malta-led UN Security Council resolutions emphasizing humanitarian pauses and corridors in Gaza. The US doesn't veto it either. It's not a ceasefire, but China said that this was a first step, calling it a minimum consensus, and said the council should have adopted a more comprehensive and robust resolution much earlier. It should also be noted that China voted on October 27th at the UN General Assembly on a Jordanian-led resolution calling for a humanitarian truce. So, Ilaria, can you give us your analysis on how China has approached the war in Gaza and Israel at the UN, including before the latest escalation? 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the veto battle, if we can call it that, that you just uh, hinted at, gives you a pretty good idea of the kind of dynamics that we often see at the UN, where you have, you know, China and Russia on the one hand, and then typically supported by different constellations of developing countries, depending on the issue at stake. And then you have the US and democratic allies on the other hand, and then they typically fail to reach an agreement, right? So regarding the Israel-Palestine conflict, historically, China has always said that it supported a two-state solution, but in practice, it hasn't really done much. And this is kind of, it's part of a long tradition of China, you know, rhetorically saying that it doesn't interfere in other countries' internal affairs. And also, like, China hasn't really been engaging in substantive, you know, security issues outside of its borders. Regarding the situation in Gaza uh, now, Beijing has criticized Israel's bombardment of civilians and and condemned violations of international law, whereas uh, it didn't call the October 7th attack a terrorist attack. Mm. Um, So in all effects, it has been seen as, as sort of supporting Hamas. Palestine at the least, and you know Hamas in a way, by not condemning their attack more strongly, and as being very anti-Israel. Uh, my interpretation is that the criticism towards Israel is more directed at the US as the kind of regional security hegemon. So if you want, Israel is here, in my view, more of a proxy of China's criticism and reluctance to then speak up more of the attack as a terrorist attack. Right. And of course, this has to be placed within the context of a far more assertive China in the region, right? Mm. I mean, in March, Beijing helped broker an agreement that saw Saudi Arabia and Iran reestablish ties after years of tension. And this surprised many because in recent history, the role of peacemaker or meddler, so to speak, has previously been reserved for longtime global heavyweights like the US and, and Russia. But it should be noted that China is now by far the biggest customer for Middle Eastern energy exports, right? So, Ilaria, why did Beijing get involved between Saudi Arabia and Iran? And are economic incentives enough to explain it? Mm. Yeah, I think this sort of... So so going back to what I said earlier, that historically China has had a policy of non-interference. But of course, as you pointed to, uh, not only it has had a more assertive foreign policy, but also it does actually try to get more involved uh, to an extent in a number of hotspot uh, issues around the world, because that is also part of a way to show, you know, I can do something, I can extend my influence there, and I can play a larger role, right? And so there are many reasons why... uh, China has no interest in uh, a regional conflict in the Middle East. Definitely economic is an important factor. As you mentioned, China is like the largest partner for many of the Middle Eastern countries there. And so China has an interest in protecting, uh, you know, its citizens and its business there. Uh, But also, I think there are two other important elements here. The playing a role as a peacemaker sort of fits into a diplomacy of South-South cooperation, which, you know, is all about having a sense of solidarity between uh, developing countries, a group that China very much thinks is a part of um, due to a shared history of Western encroachment and colonialism. But also, uh, uh, it sort of, it it gave the, so the deal gave China the, the chance to appear uh, or present itself at least as a neutral, credible peace mediator or peacemaker, which is again a role that we've seen China seems to want to play uh, more. Uh, and, and so far it hasn't really been doing anything in that respect. And so, so the deal was a chance to signal again to the rest of the world that China can play this role, uh, is ready to play this role. And also they, they use the occasion to showcase uh, the, the, basically the implementation of Xi Jinping's signature policy the Global Security Initiative. Right. And I guess a good illustration of what you just said is quite closer to us. On November 20th, 
the ministers of foreign affairs from Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, the Palestinian Authority and Indonesia going to Beijing to try to end the war in Gaza as soon as possible. So it's not just what China wants. Some countries seem to be looking for an alternative to Washington. Is China happy to fill that position, Ilaria? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wanted to paraphrase something that a prominent China scholar, Sean Breslin for Warwick University, had um, uh, written a few years ago. The alternative Chinese vision of world order is important to developing countries, not so much because of the specifics of what China achieved domestically in terms of developing and growth or political trajectory, but it's more important for setting the precedent, right, for setting the standard for what can be done if other developing countries also do uh, what is best for themselves and based on their contingent situations and and economic and, and, and developing circumstances. And so China is happy to provide this model for other countries. Right. I want to pick up on this idea of China as the peacemaker. Uh, surely one test of Beijing's commitment to peace has to be its positioning on the war in Ukraine. So China has not condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine and has abstained during the United Nations votes on the war, including a vote last February at the General Assembly calling for ending the war in Ukraine and demanding Russia's immediate withdrawal from the country, in line with the UN Charter. So Zichen, can you articulate how China reconciles pushing for a ceasefire in Gaza, but not so in Ukraine? Well, uh, I mean, it's been a few minutes, but I do admire your effort of going through all the voting records at the United Nations Security Council. <laughs> you, you apparently did your homework. And, uh, and Ilaria made many points and uh, allow me to disagree with one. You know, uh, you know, after uh, the October 7 attack and uh, U.S. Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer was in Beijing. And uh, so the Chinese Foreign Ministry issued a statement at the time that was before Israel's ground military uh, you know, response to the Gaza Strip, and China condemned the uh, attacks on civilians at the time. So there was that. And also, I think China is calling for seizing hostilities in the war in Ukraine. I'm quoting from a 12-point statement from Beijing issued in February of this year. It's, the document is called, I think, uh, China's Position on the Political Settlement of the Ukraine Crisis. That's the formal name. And uh, the third point reads, you know, in Chinese, 停火止战, uh, literally seizing fire and stopping uh, fighting. I think, you know, on the war in Ukraine by now, Beijing's position is quite clear. And uh, it's also very apparent that the West, including, you know, notably Europe, is very unhappy about Beijing's position. I personally had the, the privilege of living and working in Europe for 29 months, and uh, I admire the European project, which is a peace project after the Second World War. A war on the European continent like this was, you know, was simply unimaginable. And uh, I actually think, you know, China's position on these matters, you know, are quite consistent. It's always been, you know, I summarize them into three points. The first is, in Chinese, 停火止战, which is seizing hostilities. The second is basically pushing for negotiations. And the third is political settlement, which applies to the crisis in Gaza and the war in Ukraine. And uh, as Ilaria, you know, correctly mentioned, uh, China doesn't have a habit of using coercive measures on matters to which it is not a direct party. 
perhaps uh, you know at least partly out of its non-interventionist uh, foreign policy. I mean, I would still strongly caution against overestimating China's ambition and the capacity in the Middle East, especially on security or military matters. You know, China is not the United States and does not aspire to play the role that the U.S. has been playing across the world in the recent decades. And, you know, here I am at the Center for China and Globalization, a non-governmental think tank. We recently, we also get, because this is a port of call for Beijing's diplomatic community, we have also have uh, embassy officials come here and uh, ask uh, for similar questions. And uh, I think, you know, China is the uh, rotating chair of the U.N. Security Council, presidency this year and uh, under China's rotating presidency the Security Council finally adopted a resolution which you know all five permanent members and uh, 10 other non-permanent members agrees and that's a progress. Yeah. Zichen, you're absolutely right. I, I said China condemned the attack, but it didn't call it a terrorist attack, right? So I think the absence of the qualifier terrorist in front of attack was what drew criticism from Western uh, democracies, which indeed call it a terrorist attack, right? Um, and then I have to absolutely agree with you that um, that China does not aspire to have the same role as the US has in the Middle East. So, you know, we, sh- we, we should also put things in perspective. Like, yes, on the one hand, it wants to play a larger role when it comes to peace mediation, for example. Uh, but I absolutely agree that, that we shouldn't expect uh, suddenly a, a big military presence, for example, of, of China in the Middle East, such as is the case for the US, because I don't think that will happen. But going back to what Dijin said, I think some of the criticism on China's approach to the war in Ukraine has been that Xi Jinping may be in a unique position to influence Moscow on the matter, but may not be doing so. Xi Jinping paid a visit to Vladimir Putin in March, and and Vladimir Putin came to Beijing in October, a friendship both leaders have described as without limits, with the apparent contradiction of saying one should not interfere in other countries' affairs, a message often targeted to the United States, while at the same time appearing lenient on Russia invading its neighbor. So, Zichen, do you think this damages China's credibility? Well, I think, uh, frankly speaking, I think China's uh, stance on the war in Ukraine, of course, is not something that, for example, the European Union likes, and uh, it doesn't help with China's relations with Europe, and uh, that's a fact. And uh, I think I'd, I'd also like to add, for example, uh, China hasn't uh, recognized the, uh, what Russia says is annexed uh, uh, eastern regions of, of Ukraine to be part of uh, Russian territory, and China uh, hasn't ac- uh, recognized uh, Crimea as part of you know Russian uh, territory. But on the other hand, one thing is basically what I mentioned a bit earlier is that China doesn't have a habit of interfering in matters that it is not a direct party to with coercive measures or oh, another. Uh, you know, this is an example I always gave. Is if you look at the map of at a Chinese household, you know, China is typically at the center of the world map, and uh, Russia is a huge existence on top of China. It's longer and it's seen as very bigger. And uh, over the past centuries, there were many interactions between China and, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and later Russia. It shares a long border of thousands of kilometers. In very good relations, uh, the border doesn't have to be guarded uh, very heavily by military presence. 
the China uh, Russia continues to be a major uh, supplier of resource for countries like China and also India and uh, China feels it has you know the United States have been encircling and containing uh, China and China feels like insecure needs some strategic partner so from a very na- uh, in a perspective of, of national interests that's perhaps what has driven Beijing's uh, choice on this war in Ukraine Ilaria, Dijian just mentioned China looking for strategic partners. And one way China has been building literal bridges with other countries has been its Belt and Road Initiative, a sort of global mega development project to stitch China to the rest of the world through investments and infrastructure. You are leading a research project looking at one particular component, China's investments in digital technology, also called the Digital Silk Road. You and your colleagues have been looking into the political and social consequences for developing countries receiving Chinese investments in their digital infrastructure. What have you found? I mean, many, many things, but time is limited, of course. And so I wanted to highlight one aspect in particular that we found really interesting. And that, just to contextualize it a bit, one of the reasons for why we started this research project about a year ago is to kind of contribute to the debate over whether China, by exporting technology to developing countries, is also exporting what's been called digital authoritarianism. In other words, for instance, uh, the question of whether by providing, for example, surveillance equipment to um, semi democratic or autocratic countries, uh, this further enables the repression of citizens and freedoms. So much of the policy discourse around this debate tends to see it as a one-way street where China comes in and imposes these technologies on the recipient countries and, and together with that also imposes its preferred norms and practices over how to use this technology. Um, and so we wanted to nuance and complicate the picture a little bit right, with this project. And so, so we went and did field work in um, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia and the Philippines this year and we talked to stakeholders from the government, the defense establishment, um, civil society and academia and what we really found is that it isn't a one-way street, right? There is, first of all, there is a lot of demand for these Chinese technology by the recipients. There is also a lot of contestation. There is a lot of bureaucratic struggles within these countries when it comes to accepting or making decisions on which uh, technologies uh, you want to import and from where. And in a majority of the cases, we found that the decision to involve, for example, Huawei as a provider over another for 5G networks, for example, are based on economic uh, considerations. Even And that is even when the security, potential security risks uh, have been evaluated. It was very interesting to see how the domestic dynamics really do play a role in you know, foreign politics. Right, because I mean, when we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative and how, from the perspective of China, it is meant to help countries develop, the subtext is often that there is no political design behind it. We're here to help develop infrastructure and increase trade between our countries. But the difficulty is that it is hard to separate business from the state in China. And it's certainly been the experience of Bob Picard. For listeners, he was the head of communications for the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, basically China's answer to the World Bank and the main source of funding for the Belt and Road Initiative. At that time, Picard is a well-known Canadian national in a hugely influential role in Beijing until he resigns in May, claiming the Chinese government was everywhere in the supposedly independent bank. And he didn't just resign, he fled 
on the advice of Canadian officials fearing for his safety. This summer, Zichen, you wrote on your webpage, Pekinology, that the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank was truly apolitical and independent from the Chinese government. What was your reasoning? Well, uh, again, uh, thank you for you know mentioning technology, and I look forward to reading your research, Ilaria. And uh, yeah, on this particular subject, you know, first of all, I think uh, it. I, I don't know how AIIB thinks of it, but I don't think it would like to. Uh, be characterized that its loans are for the Belt and Road Initiative. If you actually, I think if you actually look at its website, uh, Belt and Road Initiative isn't there because it's a multilateral uh, development bank. And uh, on the accusations by Mr. Bob Pickard, and uh, first of all, I think I have uh, a few answers. First of all, his accusation was quite vague. Because when asked uh, whether he knew of instances when the Communist Party of China members banded together to overrule the board of directors, Picard told the Wall Street Journal, and I quote, uh, he said, not that I know, not like that. And secondly, uh, Mr. Picard's accusation was uncorroborated by his colleagues. I'm quoting from, you know, FT, and uh, FT said, an AIIB insider said the allegation did not correspond with what he had seen working at the bank for a number of years, and uh, three other people familiar with the matter questioned uh, Pika's accusation. Let me quote uh, another story from the Wall Street Journal, is that, you know, employees said uh, the claims were a surprise. Foreign employees, both current and former, said the allegations don't accord with their own experience at the bank. That's the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, not a Chinese media outlet. Allow me to interject, Jinchen, just so our listeners understand. You're saying current employees at the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which you refer to AIIB, have said Picard's accusations are baseless. That's correct, yes. And thirdly, you know, AIIB, the Asian uh, Investment Infrastructure Bank, although headquartered in Beijing and initiated by China, is designed to enable checks and balances. It's structured just as, you know, other like ADB, and uh, the World Bank. So in decision-making, the voting power is based on G- GDP size, and the combined votes of European countries and other developed countries have veto power as a collective. And also, as a, uh, as a matter of fact, AIIB has decided on major issues by consensus, not votes, just to uphold unity and the principle of the you know broad consultations. And the president of AIIB actually is Chinese. His name is Jing Li. In 2020, he was re-elected by a unanimous, unanimous vote to a second uh, five-year term. And uh, his colleagues include, for example, Danny Alexander, a vice president and formerly a UK treasury minister. So many of the senior management are well-known figures who have long ties and working experience in Western governments. And uh, yeah, and uh, I think another point I raised in my op-ed on my newsletter is basically that, for example, AIIB is seen as, you know, it's headquartered here and it's initiated by China, but actually the largest beneficiary of AIIB's landings is India. And uh, I think uh, your listeners know China and India, unfortunately, had a very bloody border clash in 2020. And in the, immediately after that, AIIB, AIIB still extended loans to uh, to India. And to this very day, uh, India remains the number one uh, recipient of loans uh, from uh, from AIIB. So I think that actually 
is quite powerful in substantiating, you know, uh, AI-based neutrality. I want to end this interview with a quote I came across in preparing this episode. It's from an article from Foreign Policy from 2022 that has the same title as our episode, What Does China Want? And this is what it said. China doesn't want to be a superpower, one pole of many in the international system. It wants to be the superpower, the geopolitical sun around which the system revolves. Ilaria, to you first. Would you agree with that summary of China's designs for the world? First of all, I wanted to thank you for uh, bringing up Pekingology because Zi Chen, I'm a subscriber and I read your newsletter every week. Thank you very much. Uh, so, so to your question, Arnaud, I think um, so. as a researcher, of course, I, I look at my own work, at my own uh, findings and, and research over the past decade or so. And I think I would tend to agree with that statement. I think it has to be nuanced a bit in a sense that China does call out for multilateralism, right? So it does want to see a world where the rules are not just made by what China is seeing as just basically the US and, and, and its democratic allies, but chiefly the US. And so it does want to bring more diversity to that. But I also think at the same time, it does see itself as having a prominent role to play, right, in that context. And after all, Chinese leaders and party leaders are very explicit about it in all the speeches and all the official documents, white papers and, and all the initiatives like Global Security Initiative, Global Development Initiative and Global Civilization Initiative and so on. They are very explicit about wanting to change the rules of the game. And that is basically the way I see it as an expression of realizing the Zhongguomeng, the, the Chinese dream, which is, of course, in nature is a domestic project of national rejuvenation, but then China playing a prominent role in international arena is, in my view, an extension of that. So putting China back at the center, as it used to be the case when uh, during the Chinese empire. I think, uh, actually, Elon Musk recently went on a podcast called uh, Lex Friedman, and uh, he said something that's left me a deep impression. Basically, he said two things. First, uh, China is internally focused. And secondly, China and the U.S., in Elon Musk's words, uh, both of them are not acquisitive. And uh, I mean, I think his summary of China is quite accurate. And uh, I think, for example, you know, China's maintains it is still a developing country. It may be the world's second largest economy, but its GDP per capita is still very low. It's still not at the high income country. It still has a long road to go. And a lot of its aspirations and the people's understanding about it, I, I kind of think come from like a projection from the United States. And I don't think that's what China wants to be. It doesn't want to be the superpower where the geopolitical sound around which the system revolves. China wants a world with more accommodating rules for the global south, for the developing world, and uh, where there will be more you know, fairness and justice, for example, more voting share for the developing countries on the IMF. And uh, in the past century, uh, rich countries have got richer, but uh, the global south countries, if we measure them by GDP per capita, actually they are large with the northern countries have you know, grown. In that sense, uh, the developing countries have fallen behind. And uh, China, of course, has its own political interests, you know, to be recognized, to play a key role internationally. But as President Xi told President Biden again this year, that China has no intention to, uh, you know, challenge or replace the United States. I think China's stance is to play by the rules and shape it for 
fortunate is uh, absolutely, but uh, in a more fair and uh, accommodating and uh, inclusive manner. Yeah. All right. Dichen, Ilaria, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on the podcast, especially alongside such an excellent guest. Ah, thank you very much. This episode was produced by Arno Siad and edited by Bragi Pedersen with sound from Bloomberg. 